Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Leanna. Happy to see you. It's amazing to hear your story and share that broadly as a female founder, leader, and honestly, someone who shares a lot of good stories. Love to have you share that a little bit further. So for those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about yourself? Hey, hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a great honor to have me on your show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here today. I've been a, a two-time technology startup founder. Of course, one I didn't want, did not want to come because it was a failure. Been a zero to one product leader. And also I've been a startup mentor across startup communities here in Southeast Asia. Currently, I'm the co-founder and the chief product slash technology officer of Poland. We are a, a B2B liquidation platform designed for sustainability. Essentially, what we do is we help brands, big brands and businesses, clear their slow-moving obsolete inventory so that they don't have to end up in landfills. Awesome. Not to mention that you used to spearhead Girls in Tech as a managing director, so helping lots of women be able to access coding. So really amazing. On that note, I'd like to talk about that. Why is family important to you? Because it's something they've talked about in the past in terms of growing up, being an inspiration for who you are today as an entrepreneur and giving back to community. So could you share a little bit more about all the way from the beginning? Wow. <laughs> that feels like a, a well, definitely a, a personal storytelling. Obviously, family is where someone experiences the foundational formative years learning about values. So I think my family for me, for most, has been my source of inspiration and also teaching me about values in life, what are values are going to matter to me and also in shaping my personal philosophy. My family background is a bit unique in the sense that most people, I think, would grow up thinking that we have a mother and a father. They both have jobs and you sort of be the, the, the part of the family you need where as a child, you grow up actually thinking that mom and dad is going to teach you a lot about the world. Uh, I think for me, for the most part about my family is that I've had that experience of witnessing how my parents actually live out their, their, their own personal ambitions. My dad first wanting to realize his ambition of becoming a semicon entrepreneur in the 1990s. Unfortunately, something happened there down the road. Well, my mom, I think she she more or less had a very different lifestyle, her life back before she came to Singapore. I would, if I were to be really open and honest about it, my mom, she came from a royal family and she married my dad and they had the sweet, I would say, sweet sort of like life that they wanted to start here in Singapore, right, from scratch. Essentially, your sort of immigrant story, let's the startup of our family. So being born mixed race, my mom and dad mixed race herself. My dad is also mixed race himself, half Chinese, half, I would say, uh, Bonio. Kalimantan Bonio and my mom's more of a the Persian Indonesian a bit of Dutch and Thai blood herself. So we never really had a sort of a strict configuration of what we want to be and how we want to be because the conversations around dinner table at you know company uh, sorry at, at family events usually are like you know what do you want to eat? Do we have a set like so do we eat Malay food or do we eat Chinese food or Indian food? Because my family never had a sort of that standard 
norms around around culture or communities. So I think that's where I realized we we've had to come up, come together and, and, and just set the values for ourselves moving forward. So conversations were very much pretty much around Oh, Dad, what do you like to do? So my dad loves to tinker around with his electronic kits. He would always, you know, bring that home. And as a kid, being the curious kid I am, and of course, I spent a lot of time with my dad. My dad is literally sort of my first science teacher. And I wanted to learn more about him through his work and what he's, he's engrossed in. So my dad pretty much has his life there as a product engineer at Philips. And one time I also discovered that he has his dream of actually starting his own company. On my mother's side, I think... Going away from that royally life or what is expected of her in the court, having that life first time to be a, a commoner, life of freedom, basically, of no traditions and whatnot. She pretty much I could also dabbled in the world of entrepreneurship. She started her own, I would say, uh, small bakery. It's a family business. She shared with her mom and uh, she wanted that to be a source of her channel of her to do things independently rather than being told that she cannot, cannot do certain things. So I think with my family being mixed race, for the most part, I never found a real community. I don't know if I would belong to, I mean, growing up, I went to school studying Mandarin and then only switching halfway because I was really terrible at writing, you know, the characters. I always got almost like 50 or like, you know, 56 out of 100 kind of scores, sometimes even failing. So the decision to switch to, to learning Malay, to me, I treated it more like a new canvas that somehow I, I got to learn more about the culture and the norms and ways of people. But the thing with my both my mom and dad, them dabbling in entrepreneurship and, and way of life, I just felt like, is, is this the only way a path forward even growing up? I was just more thinking about becoming a doctor. But of course, when my father's business didn't do well in the Asian financial crisis, the suppliers started to pull out. That's when we realized that things don't necessarily go according to plan. And we as a family went through a lot of financial hardship as a result. My own personal, elite personal philosophy about really understanding, being curious about who we are, how things should work and how do we make things happen. So from then on, I think the wanting to prove myself, I would say, you know, helping to, to prove myself and also helping my dad realize that, um, of course, he has his own personal philosophy around failures and around starting up again, he, he would, of course, have his own direct experiences with entrepreneurship. I've seen both the good and bad of it. But one thing I, I would realize from both my, my mom's and that's, I would say, personal trajectories and the ambitions, I realized that there's got to be more out there. And that's why I wanted to explore the, the boundaries of what is possible for myself. Wow, that's really interesting because you went a lot. So you talked about yourself as a daughter of you know, people, folks who are entrepreneurial. You talked about race as a minority. And you talked about your learnings in contrast to them as well. So a lot to unpack there. What was it like growing up? Because you say you wanted to not be an entrepreneur and then you became an entrepreneur. And you talked about your parents' entrepreneurship journey, right? One who was rebelling against the norms and restrictions and becoming entrepreneurial. Another person working as part of a former startup that's now big, Philips, and having a dream to be an entrepreneur. So I guess maybe another way of saying is when you, how did you discover that you want to be an entrepreneur? Were, they, were your parents encouraging it? Or they were telling you not to be an entrepreneur and you decided to become an entrepreneur anyway? How did that? We kind of have the elephant in the room here, which I'm not addressing, which is probably my my frustrations with my dad. He always has a lot of bad assumptions after his own personal, I would say, failure there with the company, right? He was such a saying like, oh, my business partner are cooperating with me. Oh, I don't have investors who trusted me. I would form a personal hypothesis around 
Is it really true? Can I prove this using my curiosity as a trait to explore and experiment and get that learning myself going out there? And also the fact that I think my mom has been a steady source of motivation. You know, while all that is happening in the background, my mom would say, hey, you know what? You can do whatever you want to do. Look at me. I broke away from the chains of traditions and here I am in Singapore living my life. Of course, she would argue that my dad could have done better. <laughs> you put it this way. But at the same time, I think the, the personal hypothesis and wanting to prove that, hey, is it true? You cannot start a business and you cannot be successful at it. What would it take to be successful? What are the success footprints that I need to educate myself on? And what are, what are some traits I need to develop? Being mixed race, not being given a sort of a standard, okay, like if you grew up in a Chinese family, you know, Confucian values, perhaps one of the ways where you, you can lean on, but being mixed race, you're confused because on one hand, being part of the royal, they have a set of conducts, but we know royal families in Malaysia, they're kind of like everywhere, right? They all kind of mix themselves. So maybe Malays are supposed to do this, this is how you show up. So it's a philosophy under parenthood, under chasing ambition whatsoever. So, and my dad sort of, his personal relationship is more of a laser, laser affair. As children, we're left to have to figure out things by ourselves. So thankfully, my mom also later also had a gig becoming a librarian. And that's where she exposed me to the world of books and reading about different things, I guess, that sort of hone my, my curiosity further to, to really read about the lives of other people and how they go about making such decisions, becoming an entrepreneur and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it's really having that, that frustration, that curiosity turning into at a micro level. And using that, leaning on that to, to create possibilities, that's how I ended up becoming who I am today. But of course, entrepreneurship, it's, it's not sort of a, a, a plain vanilla journey. Or you got to put flavor into it, you got to put color into it, you got to put context to it. Every entrepreneur, if you go from one entrepreneur to another entrepreneur, uh, they would tell you that they would experience challenges, set of challenges starting up. But there is sort of a common language, a common, I would say, philosophy going about entrepreneurship, uh, no matter what industry, what space you're in. So I think I find the world of entrepreneurship with that set of philosophy about, you know, going through what a typical startup owner goes through a little bit strangely, strangely to put it, a bit comforting sort of a regimental way of a system to go about it. Like, oh, it's expected when you're a startup founder at early stages, you're not going to get your product market fit, but they may be sort of books or, or, or you can learnings from other people who have done what you're trying to do, who are farther ahead in that journey and you can learn from them. So I guess that demystifies the whole idea of like when you're, when you're a mixed race, when there are no rule books, no playbooks to go about how you live your life, you got to have to lean on and find something to give you that compass or a GPS of how to go about it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something interesting, which is that your father had these dreams and then unfortunately it didn't happen. And I really empathize with that. I've really seen that as well in my family as well. And then he, he has that set of learnings with you, which you don't agree with. So it's interesting because he's both a role model and he's also a debater. You know, that makes sense. Because he's also the person who helped introduce you to technology, right? So how, how does that work? I mean, because I think it also feels like to some extent you channel that in girls in tech and helping other female founders and entrepreneurs learn about coding. How does that all come together about that? Well, first thing, first thing, I think growing up in Yishun, where stranger things happened, you know, in Singapore, it hashtag Yishun, strange things happen in Yishun. Well, I grew, I grew up in an industrial town, Yishun Street 22, Avenue 6. At that time, I think there was compact. 
I don't know if you remember that old 1990s company, computer, personal computer company, Compact. There was there was uh, Murata. You know, there's, there's a lot of those AOLC, Silicon, Semicon companies there. My dad actually had a stint uh, a while before he joined Felix. I was in one of those companies and he brought me to tour some of the Silicon fabrication assembly line in a factory. So as a kid, he would always tell me, Liana, I don't want you to have dolls. For some reason, he just wouldn't let me have dolls. My mom once said, like, why not? She said, she's a girl. Why not let her have dolls, Barbie dolls? And whenever we go to Toys R Us, I remember my dad would be like, no, we're not going to the girls section. It's all pink, which is why you see today, you know, I, I tend to dress up in green or, or black, mostly green. <laughs> so it was so bad that, that I was so curious about why I can't have a doll that I have to go to a sundry shop one time to buy a $2.50 made in China doll just to prove him. Like, hey, look, it's not going to harm me. Nothing happen- Nothing bad happens to me. I have a doll now, $250 doll. I can play with it. No. Ah, no, put that away. I give you a better toy. So he would bring some gadgets or something. Then he, he would actually walk me through and say, hey, look, this is how a typical engineer, you know, he would like, this is how you switch it on. This is how everything. So I think a lot of it has been the influences, the exposure and being a dad's, daddy's girl, right? And and that has actually shaped my interest, my early interest in technology. And it wasn't until I was 12 where I started going to IRC and then it was the time doing Yahoo Josities and you can make and customize Yahoo Josities pages and stuff. So I started doing that. And even at school, one time there was an enrollment open for learning how to use Microsoft Office. At the primary tree level, no one would be interested in that. But I was among the few girls I think the only girl in the class, I remember, I was outside of curriculum. It's optional, and but I did it. And then I went on to do more like computer classes outside. In fact, I never studied computer or technology as part of my major or anything. There was already there. It was already in the background. And then it was until when I was about, I think, 12, 13, and we had neighbors who work at Sun Microsystems. And they gave a whole pile of books of uh, Java and stuff like that. They say, hey, look. Your, your children might be interested in this because this is the future. Like, come on, I'm like only, I think I'm only like 12 or 13. Like they were giving me Oracle sort of like Java system books. I was like, okay, fine. I, I can just go to it. But why is it all binary? Why is it all numbers? It got me really curious because I can't fathom the idea that there would be people out there reading books like this. And that's where I started my journey of going to NLP and checking out more coding stuff, basically learning how to use Adobe and stuff like that. So to me, it's, it's more of a hobby. But it didn't occur to me until much later when I needed cash myself. Like I said, we grew up, we had financial circumstances that I needed a part-time job that pays well, you know, not from tuition because I spent a lot of time, a lot of emotional investment with tutoring kids. I feel like that's not a good use of my time. So someone actually gave me a lead to work in IT sales for, and it turned out to be a major, uh, someone who owns the distribution of a lot of the IT equipment in, in goods and software in Singapore. And, and I was very very privileged to be able to to, to join, uh, you know, right under the marketing director, right from intern and grew into enterprise sales position, even when I was in my teenage years before I went to NUS. And even during NUS, I spent a bit of time there working at NUS IT co-op as a student. And I, I one of the, the interesting learnings I learned there is that I do it for money, but at the same time, I find that I'm actually getting trained to get used to get familiar with systems and the kind of work environment in an IT in IT space. I never really thought that I would actually become an IT entrepreneur myself. Even today, I only followed my curiosity from my dad, from the exposure, until one day when I was selling a lot of this software, doing really, really well living in software sales at one point during university, Kaspersky, I sold. <laughs> and I told myself, hey, why am I just stopping at selling software? Why, wh- what is the next thing? Can I learn to build the software? 
how does this software get made? And that was how I ended up getting a product role. And when I was in the NUS, getting into that, that, that program where being the first, I would say, among the few females going to, going for females, minority female, I would say, going to Silicon Valley and working with a startup that later got acquired by Skype because the solution that we have built actually forms the sort of the, the mobile chat feature at, at Skype. So there was really an eye-opening experience because here I have my dad who has been at Semicon and he would never actually tell his daughter that one day you're going to go Silicon Valley, but dad himself want to go Silicon Valley. We never got a chance to go Silicon Valley, but the daughter somehow ended up on this special program and then she went on to work at Silicon Valley and, start, and actually the startup got acquired by Skype. So it's really ama- amazing. So it was totally not planned at all. It's just basically just following the curiosity and fulfilling that curiosity, you know, to see where it takes you to. And he must be so proud of you and scared for you and <laughs> all those things in between. Yeah. Well, he tries. He tries to say, oh, it's really dangerous out there. <laughs> That's how parents show they care. It's like they want to be protective, right? You know, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, he does. But at the same time, I think I, I once heard him murmur to his friends, you know, when I visited the warehouse nowadays, he said, your father's really, really proud of you. Like, yeah, but he doesn't say, but he tells everyone in the in the warehouse that he's very proud. He's like, I have a daughter. My daughter is reading this software that you're going to help one day liquidate everything in the warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know. Yeah. He's, he doesn't praise you, but he praises you to all his friends. Yeah, go. exactly. <laughs> Asian family. <laughs> Yeah. So funny. What's interesting is that I see that really channel in your career since then because you obviously you've done product, you've given back by leading girls in tech, you've also been focused on sustainability as well. So how does that all translate? How do you see that working together? Well, I do want to give back more. I think giving back to the community, giving back as an extension of my individual identity. You know, I'm being a female minority, you know, in tech and not having a conventional sort of engineer sort of route. But actually, like I said, it all started as curiosity and hobby and become a job and the job suddenly became a real occupation and wanting and then purpose to be to be a software entrepreneur, building products, something with a, a bigger goal, larger purpose. It's funny how you actually made me realize it's all actually my dad. Because right from the start, I was very, the whole exposure, the whole experience learning and working with him side by side, even getting grounded for, for messing up his electronic kicks one, one afternoon. He really grounded me in, a, in the storeroom and I got really scared and frightened because it was dark. I nearly peed my pants as well. Sorry <laughs> for saying that. But that was the turning point where I realized that I not only want to make my dad happy, I not only want to prove him wrong, but at the same time, how am I going to serve? Who am I? What, what, this is a blank canvas, me, called me, serving as an extension of my identity that, that, that should be natural. So whenever I have time, whenever I can do it. But when I go into the sustainability space, I think it's more about realizing the, the sheer magnitude of the business ways that a lot of companies by default would have to throw away because they ha- there are no other solutions. There's no tech en- en- enablement or there's no... I would say, sort of a framework to deal with how do we get business ways sustainably out of the system and not dumping into other ecosystems to another person's lab to deal with it. Because if we keep doing that, we're just pushing pushing and not addressing the root cause of why they have so much ways in the first place. That's where I learned, I realized that at a micro level, if we look at problems, if we look at problems, we see that, oh, they follow, they have a certain origin and they kind of follow their, their process and life cycle about accordingly. But at the end of the day, if we do not rise to actually 
we do not rise to address it. Like in myself, my situation with my dad, like my dad always has assumptions about, it's so hard to start a business as a minority. It's so hard to raise funds from investors. Investors don't trust you because you had a failure. I set up a personal hypothesis to prove that. Similarly, in at Poland, when I saw the opportunity to do something about this was because even for 10 years, my dad worked at a warehouse as a building manager and working with the CEOs of these large retailers like Well of Sports. And every year they would have a surplus of Nike shoes that they, they've been told my dad, don't give it away, cut it up so that we can send them into containers. And these containers are run by companies who would take them to dispose of or incinerate. I've been to on-site visit from one of those weekends. My dad had tried to organize a grassroots initiative where he rallied Bangladeshi workers nearby to, to actually help assist to dispose of these goods. But it's funny because some of the Bangladeshi, they don't even have nice Nike shoes themselves. But you are asking people to put in so much effort and work into organizing this business ways so that you can throw them away. That really angers me. That really frustrates me. And why don't we spend the same amount of effort to actually redistribute it, resell it, someone's trash and someone's gold. So spending a bit of time really asking the, the right questions, asking what is the problem to solve here, really takes you back in terms of really thinking about why is this a problem? Why aren't business liquidating sustainably? Why are they doing this continuously to prevent any environmental or financial impact? Because when, when we, by default, choose to, to deal with business ways by selling them offline, one-off sales, uh, what we are really saying is that this problem always happens, but then if we can try to sell, we sell, but otherwise it's just going to go into landfills. It's not my problem anymore. But we look at it and ask ourselves, why does this problem occur? Is it, is it a forecasting error? Is it due to oversupply? Is it due to product launches? So we realized a few things there. And also there are some things that we can control and we cannot control. For example, on the business side, they cannot predict consumer de demand in advance. They can have a sort of a standardized um, certainty. They know that, okay, this is going to be this, this, this. Situations like the pandemic happened totally would run, <laughs> I would say, beyond anyone's expectations of what normal is, is. So a lot of businesses around the world have been impacted, severely impacted by the pandemic. And situations like that, I think, needs to be managed in, in a more proactive and consistent manner, not when a pandemic happens. Then we will look at the supply chain and business ways and say, hey, uh, we're just going to resort to the normal way of liquidating rather than look into maybe using data, using automation to liquidate more continuously rather than one offline sales. So I think the taking back to the point of sustainable liquidation, yeah, it's a new category. We're excited to actually educate a lot of businesses about how they can continuously liquidate both to avoid environmental and financial impacts because it costs money to store excess goods in a warehouse. And every month, if you're a manufacturer, you will be receiving a lot of fresh stocks and you need to clear the warehouse. If you don't, it costs you money at 80 cents to a dollar to clear those goods from your warehouse before you can take those stocks, fresh stocks in. And also when you deal with modern trade partners as a business, they don't want your old stocks. And they always already have a very limited physical space to sell your fresh stocks. Imagine, like if you look at the typical modern trade retail situation, we have multiple brands, limited space. You have a lot of brands because that's what consumers want, but not necessarily aligned with, with how businesses, manufacturers work. So what are we going to do with, with products that are fresh? They may be fresh, may have one year's or two years worth of, of usage. We've got to find a home for them. So what are some ways we can clear, effectively really clear? And of course, to align the financial incentives, which most businesses are more likely to jump on, on first before sustainable environmental incentive there. 
it's on the cost, definitely, first and foremost. But I don't think that will be sustainable in the long term because, yeah, we can always uh, help them clear through sales, which is one of the first channels of sustainable liquidation here at, at Poland that we're, we're doing by having them share, upload and, and list their inventory list online for the first time and sharing that with potential buyers who are not necessarily local even open up for, for exports to actually move the goods from one warehouse to another cross-border. That would unlock some of the challenges of liquidating, selling and liquidating locally. Because for the first time, these manufacturers and, and buyers, uh, sorry, businesses realize that hey, there's more demand even for, for their goods. They never realized them not. And they're just not equipped to deal with those buyers one-on-one because dealing with large orders, B2B, typical B2D trade, it takes a lot of work, a lot of documentation, a lot of, I would say, inventory lists or accuracy that has to be insured. And also, they, they, they're not, not really equipped. Traditionally, businesses deal with Excel sheets and stuff. So what we do nowadays is to make sure that they understand that if you want to reach more buyers, you got to be online. That's the first thing. And how do you go about being online if you've never dealt with, with actually listing products online in large quantities? Because typical B2C market leases, they take your goods from your warehouse, but they sell in a single piece item. And that can be quite slow for them. And the financial incentives of offering the large discounts to consumers on the B2C marketplace are just not aligned with the businesses. They want to clear fast and in larger quantities. That has given us a lot of opportunities to innovate and to, to streamline the workflows around how do we help businesses liquidate more sustainably in larger quantities and also connecting them with buyers who may want whatever they are having. Out of all of that, has there been any moments over the course of your life where you felt like you've been personally brave? There's definitely a few moments, I would say, monumental points in my life. One was when things did not turn out the way I thought would be sort of fairytale ending, having had to grow up and mature even sooner before than I expected. When my dad had an accident and his business went under, that's where I realized that, oh, Liana, you're not going to have a schedule to mature according to being a child, adolescence accordingly, but this is the moment. This is the moment for you to decide, to commit commit to the challenges in front of you and decide what you want to do with it. Do you want to leave cover in fear or do you want to leap into the future with love and curiosity? So I think that was the time where I was the bravest because being a child and not knowing much about the world and being confused, I would say having a lot of, <laughs> I would say being a mixed race and having a lot of existential questions around what am I supposed to do now at such a young age and what, what do I have to do now? Because immediately those responsibilities of helping out the family addressing those challenges that we're facing as a family, being thrown at you at such a tender age. You just got to choose. So I chose, I went with being brave. I went with being brave because I do not have the imagination at a time of what life is going to be, but I chose to be brave and to do the hard things. And hopefully the hard things will lead me into a better place. And, and that has how it has been since then. It's interesting because how you've a few times shared about growing up in a mixed race family environment. And a couple of times you mentioned about the struggles that as a family you went through. Also, you mentioned earlier that you had built companies that did not you know, succeed in a sense of this fairy tale as well. So I'm just curious, how has your understanding of, I guess you use the word failure, so we could use that, or tough times or not having the schedule come up the way for the fairy tale ending. How has that view on that change over time? Well... There's a lot of stories out there, or rather there's a lot of messages about the virtues of facing failure, 
destigmatizing failure. But failure really, I think it's just a messy process of lifelong learning. Really, it's about learning. It's about learning and, and using that, that new data to inform your next move. And, and at a given point, you can always decide you have the choice to be brave or to be scared, cower in fear. I think when I, t- I look back in terms of the failure of the, the first version of the, the startup and having to pivot and finding purpose in actually solving problems for, for, for large businesses, brands like Unilever and L'Oreal, I realized that it's not so much about leaning into your comfort zone of what you know or what you want to do, but what can you do with what you know? Being in the moment, being in the present, these are the opportunities. Using the curiosity to create the possibilities, whether deciding to, to seize those opportunities and, and work towards realizing those possibilities. I think the, the, the definition of the evolution of my, my personal philosophy, right from the start, I wanted to prove things. And, you know, I, and now it's more like, let's always be brave because being brave really gives you this ever-expanding boundary of your comfort zone. And that actually, even though you may not know what's to come and you may not think like you, you have everything you need to, to step forward into the unknown, but so long as you're being brave, you choose to be brave, so long as you choose to lean on your curiosity to build, to create possibilities, you're going to be fine. So I like to always share this personal analogy of mine. Like It's like the cat smelling the food. They say a cat is curious. The curiosity never really killed the cat or the, or the curious cat never really lost its home because it knows, even though it doesn't go back to its previous home because it likes to wander, it always finds something that's better next. So be like a curious cat. <laughs> yeah. How do you maintain that? It, it actually is a perfect analogy, which is curiosity killed the cat, <laughs> failure killed the gay founder. <laughs> so. No, Chris, you killed the cat. Never killed the cat. The cat just found a better home. <laughs> Went to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. <laughs> this is a new movie. There we go. So how do you maintain the curiosity? Because there's a lot of tough times, right, that happen as a founder, yes, yes. especially in technology. So how does that happen? Well, <laughs> if I were to share openly, recently, I, I, it's been a long time. I never realized that I was dismissing a lot of my pain or a lot of my struggles growing up in such a, I would say, I would say in an environment that is less than perfect for a child. Any psychologist would, would say that, how can you push your child into financial hardship, into having one of your, your, your sole breadwinner being in coma and, and not being able to be the breadwinner and, and my mom also having to... At one point, I break down herself and my, me, my being the, the eldest child sort of had to step up and do that at an early age, I would say since early as 11, 12. I went to therapy recently by choice because I was curious, like I said, leaning on to my curiosity, wanting the best for myself. I went to therapy recently and I spoke with a clinical psychologist here, Claudia Jong. She was telling me that, hey, Li- Liana, you're actually very, very, very strong. Stop dismissing emotions. You're, you're telling me about your experiences, your childhood experiences in a way like exhibits humor. You're laughing about it, but you shouldn't be laughing about it. it, it you're laughing about it because humor means you're really strong. You've overcome it. So that's where I realized that, hey, am I refusing to accept that this part of my life, the childhood actually shaped who I am today and what I choose to do next. And it's not that I don't care about failure, not, not that I wasn't bitten down by failure. I was at some point, but I'm still processing those emotions in a very, I would say, in a very mindful way. 
you either let those emotions distract you or you let it inform you to be a better version of yourself, a recalibrated version of you. I would think that being a startup founder, obviously having a lot of, dealing with a lot of tragedies head on, like I said, finding the the sort of compass or GPS for, for systems that you can lean on when you have nothing, that gives you a bit of a solace, a, a bit of, I would say, discipline to go about life rather than with nothing, right? So curiosity, having the curiosity and the commit. Being committed to the discipline of becoming a founder and not not question it, really, really, really not question it at all. It's just having the commitment. And just like how I was committed to my family, I did not leave my family when they when they were having troubles. My dad wanted to marry me after a rich suitor. I was a rich Indonesian merchant at 18. I could have gone with that because I would have a good Thai Thai life. But I stayed on. I fought. I'm committed to my family. This is where I belong. These are my people. And if I don't stand up for them... I don't fight the, the hard times. Am I deserving of the good times like that when I know my family's having the good times? So similarly, as a startup founder, when times are tough at the early stages, just commit to it, commit to it and see things through. Using curiosity, you know, as a guiding light through any problems and any struggles, having conversations around what is the right problem to solve here? What is the right thing to do here? And I think that that really, really helps. So I think entrepreneurship, I have found a home in entrepreneurship for my soul. Being constantly learning, constantly reiterating and wanting to become the best version of myself for this venture, even even future ventures. Wow. Thanks for, so much for sharing. On that note, I'd love to paraphrase, I think, the three big themes I got from this conversation. Uh, the first is thank you so much for sharing about your childhood and what was it like growing up with family. And you actually spent quite a bit of time about your father as a source of inspiration as a debater, as a role model, <laughs> as a proud Asian uh, dad who you know, doesn't praise you as much, as much as he's effusive to his uh, co-workers. And I love the stories about you know, learning how to code in terms of like the engineering kids, as well as getting to see uh, semiconductors in your childhood. So uh, really interesting to see that push and pull dynamic and how that eventually informed multiple parts of your career, as well as your relationship with your mother, of course. The second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing. I think what was it like to be a founder of a liquidation marketplace about how, to some extent, actually, what you saw as a child as well helped inspire, I think, the sustainability requirement that you see in terms of reusing and not uh, dumping perfectly good sneakers. But I also talked about how the, some of the liquidation dynamics of the, what the business actually looks like. And lastly, I think throughout this entire conversation, thank you so much for sharing about what I call failure and the curious cat. Uh, so, and I loved what you said, which is that, you know, curiosity didn't kill the cat, even though it, it's what people say, right? Uh, as a norm, it's something else maybe killed the cat, but it wasn't curiosity. And I love about implicitly, like, how do you maintain that sense of curiosity? How do you maintain that sense of learning and that sense of you know, hope, even in the midst of uh, all the different tough times that you can encounter as a founder? Thank you so much, Layana, for sharing everything. Yeah, thank you to you, Jeremy. And of course, the audiences, I hope you're getting some meaningful sharing out of this. Happy to share. It's been a great honor, Jeremy, for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.